everyone. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. John is not here. He is somewhere, probably making the world a better place, one business at a time. But today, we are here to bring you snippets from our fall courses. We're offering four courses this fall. Today, you get to listen to the first half of the first lecture from a course on Rousseau and the Imagination. It's called Rousseau and the Diabolical and Moral Imaginations, taught by Dr. Emily Finley. As always, if you like it, magnusinstitute.org to subscribe to our mailing list. Enjoy! College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Were you able to read uh, the introduction to Rousseau and Romanticism? I know it was long and a bit dense, um, but I think it, it'll be worth the effort getting through this. Um, it's written by the, the introduction to this uh, transaction edition. I don't know if I included the picture in the scan that I gave, but I highly recommend this book. It's awesome. Um, the entire thing, but the introduction is to this edition is written by Klaus Rinn. Um, full disclosure, he was my advisor in graduate school, but he writes so clearly, I think, and lucidly on uh, Babbitt, who himself, Babbitt, I think is an incredibly clear and lucid writer to the point that um, if you read uh, democracy and leadership, for example, I think it's such easy and pleasurable reading that you miss how you could miss how deep the philosophy is um, and the epistemological, the, the novelty of the epistemological theory of Babbitt. Um, and I think the same of Klaus Rinn. But this introduction um, to to Rousseau and Romanticism by Klaus Rinn, it uh, I think covers. The, the basics of Babbitt's understanding of the imagination um, and the duality of the imagination. So anyways, we'll turn to the text um, in a little bit, but I've prepared some notes on this, this introduction and on um, the moral imagination and romanticism to, to get us started and to clarify uh, what is in um, the text. So, uh, what is the imagination? Um, imagination often has a connotation of fiction or um, fiction writing or the fantastical or unreal. Um, but Babbitt argues, and I agree, uh, that the imagination is what holds together our view of reality. And it, it creates an entire whole from which we uh, philosophize, from which we reason, um, and from which we make moral judgments, and uh, from from which we act, and so it it makes reality for us. It does not simply interpret reality. Um, it's a synthesizing force that creates this whole from which we live and interpret uh, reality. Um, so the imagination is in a way synonymous with intuition. It's instinctive. Um, it's a flash of feeling, subrational, 
And most of the day is spent in imagination or intuition. And it's, it's rare that we engage in philosophical or systematic reasoning in our day-to-day lives um, because it takes too much effort to actually um, critically analyze reality, which is so incredibly complex that the imagination um, creates these shortcuts for us so that we don't have to rationalize our way to just putting one foot in front of the other. And so we don't, we don't really think about that um, unless we're engaging in this philosophical reasoning, which is distinct from imagination. And daydreaming is a part of the imagination and something that we humans often do, especially when we are facing a burdensome or unwanted task. Uh, we, we kind of flitter off in these flights of fancy. Um, and the mood or the texture of the day is created and experienced as an imaginative state. So if we feel depressive one day, um, that's because of the way that we, uh, the way that our imagination is, is coloring experience for us that day. Um, the will is in a certain sense identical with imagination and the will can, it can reorient us and inspire us through action to a different state of imagination. And it can kind of draw us out of a depressive mood, for example. Um, so imagination continue, continually influences how we feel about life. It creates a sense of what life is like and how it can and should be. So this, um, this theory of imagination that I'm laying out is um, an epistemological theory. <clears throat> so I don't know how many people here have studied epistemology, but epistemology is just the study of um, how we know, how we can know reality, how we can know anything from episteme, um, the Greek episteme for uh, knowledge. So this understanding of the imagination is in contrast, for example, to uh, medieval realism, which held that we gain knowledge of the external world through sense impressions of what is uh, out there. But a profound change in philosophy occurred in the 18th century with the Romantic movement. And um, this ushered in a new understanding of the role of art and imagination. And no longer was imagination thought to be merely passive and nor should art be um, simply imitative or like a mirror. And so the romantics had this new and creative idea of the imagination as being creative um, and having primarily a creative role. So Irving Babbitt he saw value in this philosophical and aesthetical turn in the West, but he was critical of a certain prominent aspect of the romantic sensibility and the romantic imagination. Um, Rousseau is a central topic for Babbitt because Rousseau represents the quintessence of um, what is wrong in romanticism in general and in the American moral sensibility and in American politics in particular. So Babbitt was writing at um, the turn of the century. He was born in 1865. He died in 1933. 
And he was an American literary critic who studied and taught at Harvard. Um, he had a, a devoted following of students, but he was also hated by many of his peers um, for his philosophy, which they found unpalatable, his idea of the moral imagination and of um, sentimental humanitarianism, which is related to the moral imagination. Um, Babbitt is, in my opinion, one of the most profound and insightful thinkers of the modern era. I think that it's impossible to diagnose and understand exactly what is going on in the West and in America, um, politically and morally, without an understanding of the imagination such as Babbitt presents. So his epistemology of imagination is his greatest contribution to philosophy, and it, it really elucidates the modern Western ethical and moral ethos. Um, it explains the tenor of Hollywood films. It explains uh, why certain novels are New York Times bestsellers. It explains U.S. foreign policy for the last hundred plus years. Um, it explains our responses to public health issues, for example, and, and more. Um, I think it's incredibly illuminating, this notion of the moral versus the romantic imagination. So his most original contribution is this idea of a dualistic imagination. And so according to Babbitt, there are two types of imagination. There's the romantic or idyllic, he calls it, um, of which Rousseau is archetypal. And there's the moral imagination. So the romantic imagination, Babbitt says, is prone to flights of fancy. It's untethered from what is historically possible. It likes to dream the impossible dream. It tends toward wishful thinking and escapism. And we'll see that in Rousseau's writings, especially his literary and autobiographical writings. But it's, it's, Rousseau is all of a piece. So his political treatises and his literary writings, they all hang together. And they hang together through the romantic imagination, which I think many interpreters of Rousseau miss. Um, and then there's the moral imagination, Babbitt says. And so while this is equally creative and imaginative, even fanciful, it's also realistic in that it takes into account the complexity and the manifold nature of human existence. The moral imagination is sensitive to cause and effect and to the lessons of history. So Babbitt points out that we're all prone to romantic flights of fancy from time to time. And these can be more or less harmless, depending on circumstances, um, the extent to which we engage in them, and where they, where they might lead. But Babbitt says that most people are primarily inclined toward the romantic imagination, toward romantic thinking, because it provides pleasing illusions that allow us to hide not only from life's unpleasant sides, but especially from our own failings and flaws. So for Babbitt, the imagination, it's how we apprehend reality, and this is connected to will and action. Action is key for Babbitt. Through action, um, think of the Aristotelian idea of habit, we form our character and our imagination. And there's a sort of tension or dialectical relationship between will, action, and imagination. 
for Babbitt. Um, Klaus Rinn would add reason into that. So the moral imagination contributes to the good life in teaching us how to act well. For Babbitt, again, action is key. Action teaches us the real terms of human existence and how to distinguish the healthy dream from the impossible dream. And so this is, um, this, this idea of the imagination, it um, is not quite consonant with uh, like neotomism, for example, um, which would say that reason, right reasoning is how we know good from evil. And this is also a very platonic idea that um, in Plato's Republic, he takes seriously the role of imagination and he, he understands how powerful it is, which is why when he's creating this ideal Republic, this, this utopian city, um, he has uh, lengthy sections on um, how to properly cultivate the imaginations of the children in the city. Um, of the future guardians, the the type of music that they listen to, um, the, the types of art that they see. And so he's keenly aware of the power of imagination, but ultimately for Plato, and I think uh, Aquinas has this leaning too, it's um, the imagination is something that needs to be tamed and overcome by right reasoning and rightly formed reason. Babbitt, on the other hand, um, believes that it's the moral imagination is what needs to, in, in interaction with will and action together, that is what would overcome our lower will. And that is how uh, we would choose good over evil. It's not a function of reason for Babbitt. Um, so we don't reason our way to the salutary dream versus the diabolical dream. Um, so for Babbitt, the purpose of the imagination is always to get us ready for action. Unless you have the proper will by interacting in the real world, you will not have a properly disciplined imagination. So I'll pause and see if there's any questions so far, or if anybody would like to take up um, any of these ideas and elaborate or ask me to elaborate um yeah could you just go over again that bit about um the imagination pardon me if i'm not getting this right taking priority over reason in terms of moral action yeah <clears throat> um for Babbitt, he um, he does not believe that the faculty of reason is what can uh, teach us to act well. He thinks that reason is rather impotent in the face of imagination. And so while our, um, I mean, Babbitt, he, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't really give much of a philosophy of reason, which Klaus Rinn faults him for in this introduction. Um, but Rinn argues that there is a role for philosophical reasoning 
but it's not even, even Klaus Rinn argues that it's not going to be able to guide our action the way that imagination can. Um, and so the explanation for evil, uh, evil actions or, a, a idealistic and failed foreign policy, if we're looking to something like that is, uh, is a failure of imagination, not a failure of reasoning. And Klaus Rinn has a book called Will, Imagination, and Reason. And so if anybody is interested in the nitty gritty of this epistemology, I highly recommend this book where he goes in depth. And I think it's it's very clearly written. It is very, you know, philosophical. So I don't know. Um, I know some people in the class are have more or less of a background in philosophy, but if you're interested in this epistemology of imagination and the interaction between will and reason, I recommend that book by Dr. Rin, um, in which he argues that uh, reason plays a, a role, but it is secondary to imagination. And so, um, when we uh, when we reason. When we ho we hold certain worldviews and beliefs, and that is a function of our imaginative worldview, and that is informed by imagination. And so reason, it acts almost ex post facto a lot of times in um, working off of what's already there, what is already present in a, in a holistic view of the world through imagination. So if you told me um, the types of movies and books that somebody likes, I could probably guess their political leanings or um, the types of podcasts people listen to. And I don't mean um, something that would easily give it away like a political podcast or, or whether, you not, whether you watch Fox News or CNN. I mean the types of Hollywood films or Netflix shows or something um, I think that would really give away your political leanings, which itself would reveal the imaginative cast of mind toward which you are inclined, being either romantic or moral. And I think another word for the moral imagination that could be used is historical, um, a historical imagination, which Babbitt doesn't use that term, he uses moral. And I think that um, historical might be a better term in juxtaposing that to the romantic or the idyllic. So anyone else want to jump in? Um, it said the introduction didn't mention why many of his contemporaries found uh, him being Babbitt objectionable. What is it that they didn't like so much? Well, for one, Babbitt doesn't really easily fit into, um, into a, a easily defined category of either thinker or philosopher. I mean, he's not, he's not a philosopher. He was a literary critic for one thing. Um, but he, his books are, they, they meander um, across, across disciplines, across time periods. Um, he, he brings up so many different thinkers and he's weaving it all together through this epistemology of imagination. And so it's not easy to pin him down um, politically 
for one thing. But I think the major reason that he was hated is because he he said that most of us are um, prone to the romantic imagination for one thing. And he was very critical of um, American society at the time. He was very critical of um, the uh, the social justice movement of the time within the evangelical church. I'm forgetting the name of it. The social gospel movement that really influenced Woodrow Wilson. And it, it had swept across America. And this, this um, movement was all about service and um, serving humanity. And it had this type of language, this sentimental humanitarian language. And I'm sure everyone here is very familiar with this type of thing. Um, it, it has only grown, uh, it has only grown since Babbitt was writing. But he's critical of all of this types of brotherhood of man, uh, sentimental language that makes everybody feel good. Um, and so he came and he really um, hit a nerve, I think, with liberals and conservatives alike with his philosophy, because he was critical of um, romantic thinking on the left and the right. It was not a it, there wasn't a strictly political delineation here. So um, anyways, that's the sort of short answer for that. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else have any questions or want to add to this? Was, was he a practicing Christian himself? Um, you know, it's not entirely clear. He, uh, that, that was another thing is that he was critical of, of sentimental Christianity. Right. Just, just as he was critical of the scientific naturalists. Right. Um, and so it, if he was a practicing Christian, I, I'm not super familiar with um, his personal life, but he was not, to my knowledge, um, part of an organized church. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but that, that's, that's a good point. So art is a special form of intuition and imagination. And although fictional, art, poetry, literature, um, all of this can inform us about this life that we live. And Babbitt would say that art can be much more informative than uh, a philosophical treatise in helping us to know ourselves and to know about about human existence. Um, you can be with the protagonist and experience what they experience. It's incredibly powerful. Um, you can have a wide range of these uh, experiences without actually living these, these lives, these many lives in, in fiction novels, for example. Um, and in the presence of great art, we say, yes, this, this is real. This is what life is, is really like. And think of the best books you've ever read or the best movies that you've seen. I mean, these stay with us for our whole lives sometimes. And you're able to relate your own experience in life to that of a fictional character. For Babbitt, the right kind of imagination and will needs to underlie everything we do, including art. And art can be judged because he was a literary critic. So um, he says that art 
can be judged and it can be praiseworthy and blameworthy from a moral perspective. Actually, this was another reason that Babbitt was not liked is because um, some of his critics said, well, he's just, you know, advocating morality play, morality plays and things like that, which is absolutely not what Babbitt was promoting. He was just saying that um, he was reacting against this idea of art for art's sake, that, that it does not, art cannot be praiseworthy or blameworthy is behind this idea of art for art's sake. And Babbitt says, no, it in fact can be because we, we can judge the type of imagination that created this piece of art. So for Babbitt, the criterion for good art is how, how well does it um, capture the complexity of life? Is it one-sided? Is it, um, is it presenting a warped view of human experience? Um, if so, then it's not as good as, as art that um, does take into account this, this range of, of human life. So again, conceptual knowledge or reasoning is different from imagination. And the philosophical mind, Babbitt argues, works with what the imagination gives it. And a warped imagination will distort philosophical reasoning. So if you disagree with somebody like John Rawls and his theory of justice, for example, um, reason is not going to is not going to be able to defeat the theory of John Rawls because there's an entire imaginative underpinning to Rawls's theory of justice. And so if you agree with Rawls, it's because you are already in the same type of imaginative state as Rawls. Communism might be a better um, example. So from, from Brook Farm to the Paris Commune to Lenin and Pol Pot, the communist experiments, they consistently fail, often catastrophically. And yet... I mean, economically, it's irrational. Historically, it's a failure. Politically, the results are often violent totalitarianism. So why does communism persist as a theory and as an historical experiment? Why do people continue to believe in it? It's because it's persuasive on some other level. And it will continue to fail, but it will persist as an ideology because it appeals to people on a visceral, imaginative level. So has anyone ever tried to argue with a committed communist? How did it go? <laughs> give, give us, a, give us a, um, an example of how this went. <laughs> um. Well, I worked in a kitchen with him for a while. Um, it's a long story, but basically he was in his 40s at the time. Uh, he had spent his entire youth, to quote him, throwing trash cans through windows. Uh, so he, he, But he was just kind of too tired for it now. Uh, but I actually had a, a fair deal of, of back and forth I was able to have with him that was positive because... Um, I was fairly well versed in rerum novarum, 
So he would talk about the rights of workers and I'd go, yeah, absolutely. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be able to kind of twist it a little bit on its head where I'd say like, you know, but you have to provide for this as well. Or, you know, you can only provide for this if you understand, uh, you know, the, the moral framework. Uh, um, you know, I didn't definitely didn't get him the whole way, but I got him to kind of stop and squint and, and go, you know, the, the Catholic church believes that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you better believe it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but definitely, uh, some things are just so deeply ingrained, like that it's okay to throw trash cans through windows to make a point. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I was mm-hmm. never really able to dissuade him of that notion. Uh, and one wonders, you know, how, how, what you've been saying, you know, what, what movies was he watching? I'm thinking of, uh, that Spike Lee movie where that very thing happens. But, uh, you know, what was he watching when he grew up that disposed him to that sort of behavior? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Yeah, it's, um, it's difficult to argue with uh, a committed communist <laughs> because they have their rationality for, for their beliefs, um, for communism. Communism, um, I mean, Karl Marx had, you know, an entire economic theory behind communism and why it was going to work behind socialism, I should say. Um, and how we were going to get to the classless society. You know, this was supposed to be a very scientific theory. Um, and uh, and so trying to take that, take a committed communist to task is, uh, it's not something that you could make much headway on using reason. Um, because the reason that they're so committed is because this is, I argue, and, and, and Babbitt would certainly argue, is because it's um, ingrained on some other level, some other much deeper, more profound level that colors not just their reasoning about economic theory or historical materialism, but it, it colors, it's an entire worldview. And so... Um, I mean, the, the current iteration of Marxism, it has less to do with class than race, but the idea is the same. Um, with critical race theory, race takes the place of class in this pseudoscientific rationalization of what's ultimately an imaginative vision. It's a romantic dream about how life might be. But it has its... Um, very logical and uh, well-rationalized explanations underneath of it. But these ideas cannot ultimately be grappled with on a rational or an intellectual level. Any comments on that? So, um, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, the reason I got to Rousseau was because I was um, studying critical pedag- uh, pedagogy, which is one of the um, offsprings of communism into like class classroom and education. And um, the one thing that I think I'm struggling with what you're um, talking is because um, I, I am understanding the concepts uh, intuitively of what you're trying to say. But I was wondering if you could define for us uh, what are you going to call romantic idealism versus its opposite for the um, for the intent of the class, uh, mostly because I'm um, 
kind of confused if um, you're talking in a more generic term or if you're um, trying to pinpoint to specific points that he made in his theory. Because to me, um, Rousseau was always um, uh, the romantic, um, the romantic um, idealism that you're talking is kind of um, it's kind of like the what the communists do. Like they're thinking about how things can be in this possible future but are not yet realized because of A, B, and C versus the moral, which can also be related to like religion of how uh, we, uh, how people really are, like our, our actual nature versus this ideal nature that we could um, imagine in the future, what men can be, if that makes sense. Um, okay, I, if I, I think I'm understanding your question. Um, are you asking what the difference is between uh, the communist romantic imagination and its romantic dream versus uh, versus the the versus like Christian hope? No, versus its opposite, because the romantics were um, against this um, morality that you're talking, like this realism, this realism that came from the middle ages um i think you talked about a little bit that of that in the beginning so i think what i'm looking for is like a definition of what we what would you define as romantic idealism for the intent of the class because yeah, it's a very sure. broad thing that you can talk about like art philosophy yeah yeah sure so for babbitt um he's putting forth an epistemological theory and he is arguing that our apprehension of the world of reality is done by way of imagination, by way of that mental faculty. And the world is split between uh, romantic imaginations and moral imaginations. And, and it's far more common to see the romantic imagination in a person than than somebody who is primarily guided by the moral imagination. But nobody's one thing. Um, we're all a mix. But Babbitt sees Jean-Jacques Rousseau as paradigmatic of the romantic imagination. The way that the mind of Rousseau works illustrates perfectly what the romantic imagination is. And so we can read Rousseau's works. We can, especially his literary and autobiographical writings. And you can just see the, by the tone, by the tenor of the work, by what he, um, the subjects he focuses on. We're going to look at the reveries in this class. I think that is a quintessential work of the romantic imagination, the reveries. And when we, when we look at that text, um, it'll be clear to you in the concrete uh, what is meant by romantic imagination. We'll go through the details of, of what, how that type of imagination is held together. But, um, but Babbitt, um, he sees that, uh, that the romantic imagination, um, it's prone to flights of fancy, to escapism, um, and it does not take into account cause and effect as known 
through the historical record, for example. And so um, a person who, who can be primarily characterized as having a romantic imagination would be like a communist. Um, that's a great example of somebody who is romantic imagination dominant. Um, because there's, first of all, the idyllic vision that guides everything else. So the guiding vision for the communist is this classless utopia where there will be the brotherhood of man, where, um, you know, we'll, we'll hunt in the morning and fish in the evening. Um, there's this type of vision that, that Marx puts forth. Um, I don't think Marx would have been possible without Rousseau. I think Rousseau is really the precursor to Karl Marx um, because Rousseau argues for essentially the same things. Um, or he, he has essentially the same vision um, in his first and second discourses. Um, we're going to look at Rousseau's second discourse, the discourse on inequality, which is, a, it's very, um, it, it really anticipates the vision of Karl Marx. And um, am I getting at, uh, it, it's hard to give a strict definition of the romantic imagination, but it is, um, it's a quality of mind that does not take into account what is historically possible. It's wishful thinking and taken to the extreme, it results in, um, very dangerous action, action that is guided by the romantic imagination can be very, very dangerous as, as communism um, is witness. Yes, Anthony, you have your hand up. Great, there's like a hand raise function here. Yeah, it's a, since my camera's busted, I figured that was the easiest way. Um, so when you're talking about that romantic imagination, so it would it would be more something where that person looks at the ideal end of something like, hey, I, for instance, I don't know, a kid's like, oh, it would be great to have ice cream for dinner. That would be amazing. And doesn't bother to fill in the steps of what it would take to actually make that happen. Just, hey, ice cream for dinner is great. Now there it is. And not going to worry about how to get there and can only imagine the end game and how great that would be. And anything that's, that's in between there just either needs to get stepped over or kind of pushed aside. It's not so concerned with the hard and fast, how do we get from here to there? It's more, hey, this is great. This is what's awesome. This is what we're going to focus on. Yeah, in short, yes. Um, children, of course, are... <laughs> Are, are are as prone as anybody to the romantic imagination. But um, the, the romantic thinker, the ideal is what comes first. And so um, that's going to be a big part of this course is understanding idealism because um, the idealist is certainly guided by the romantic imagination and the idealist does not take into account the practical steps that are needed to reach the end. 
And so for communism, I keep coming back to this because this is just such a good and clear example. Um, for communism, there are no practical steps that can be taken that would bring you any closer to the goal. And so that so is I a metric of how idealistic it is. Um, the fact that there's no steps that can be taken that would bring you even a hair closer to that goal because the goal is unreal and idealistic. Yeah, did you have a follow-up for that? Uh, yeah, and it, it may just be a tangent and a sidetrack when you pass on, but looking at it in that way, would you, would you categorize like Plato's Republic as a morally imaginative vision versus romantic you mean yes i mean um, and i understand that may be a deeper conversation than well no i think that <laughs> i was hoping we wouldn't get to that just yet because i know that that's going to be controversial here i'm sure there are many thomists and platonists present um but i think i think plato is he's a mix. I would not say that Plato is characterized primarily by the romantic imagination, but I do think, and I'm, I'm almost certain Babbitt agrees with this, um, that Plato's Republic is a product of romantic thinking. And I'll qualify that by saying that in the latter books of the Republic, um, where, where Plato is, he has this keen insight into the human condition. And he talks about um, the different types of, of characters. He talks about democratic man and tyrannical man. And um, those, those psychological insights demonstrate that Plato is, um, he's aware of what makes human beings tick. And he's aware of um, the darker sides to human nature, which uh, romantic thinkers like Rousseau are very reluctant to confront. But um, the, the Republic is um, a product of romantic thinking insofar as he has this goal of a perfect utopia, utopian society. Um, and he has an overall vision of how, how to get there. And he has to clear away history in order to envision this republic, which I think is is dangerous thinking. Because it's it's um, idealistic thinking. Yeah, does anybody else want to jump in? Yeah, I have a question um, kind of along those lines. So in Plato, you would divide the soul into intellect, will, and emotions. I didn't really get a sense of where Babbitt would put the emotions or the passions. Uh, it sounded like maybe the lower will could be that. Um, but yeah, where would he have the emotions within the person? Well, I think Babbitt conceives of that a little bit differently um, because. He he sees the emotions, I think, and and feelings as being a part and a manifestation of the imagination. And so he would he would be more Aristotelian in 
assessing if it was the right emotion, um, if it was a proportional emotional response to something um, in his assessment as to whether or not it, it was tending toward something good or something not good, or if it was playing into the romantic imagination. Um, does that answer yeah, the question? That's, that's helpful. That was going to be my follow-up question was whether an emotion then could be morally good or bad. So if it, if it's mainly in the emotion, how does the lower will play into that? Cause it sounded like you have the higher will, which can intercept the lower will and make a morally good choice. Whereas the lower will for Babbitt sounded like it was something more like temp what we would think of as temptations. Um, so that to me kind of goes along with emotions. So I'm a little confused by that. Yeah, well, for Babbitt, the higher and lower will are, are both part of the same imagination. Well, the same person, but within within all of us, there's a moral imagination and a romantic imagination. And so to realize the higher will is to have the moral imagination be dominant and to guide our action. And so emotions, insofar as they're unhealthy or out of proportion um, or as they guide us um, toward romantic thinking, he would say that that those those would tend us those would um, cause us to indulge in the lower will or to realize the lower will. But I don't think he disparages just how. I mean, he's no stoic. He doesn't think that we should um, not have emotions or or um, not. Uh, um, is that going in the right direction? Yeah, yes, that helps a lot. And it makes me, it helps me make more sense too of that. So the imagination and the will for Babbitt are interplay. There's an interplay between them. They're not, you know, two distinct separate things. So thank you. Yeah. It, it's different than the platonic idea, idea of this tripartite soul where you have the three parts of the soul that are competing. You have the appetitive part, the rational part and the um the is it the spirited part am i getting those three correct and they're competing for um dominance and so babbitt conceives of it differently he thinks that it's it's all imagination and um imagination and will that are realized through action and then reason can merely support what has already been decided in the imagination. Reason cannot guide imagination. Reason cannot guide our behavior or our beliefs or our choices between good and evil. Um, reason is, is pretty impotent. Any other comments on this topic? So a related idea to the romantic imagination um, and to the idea of an idealism is sentimental humanitarianism, which I've brought up. Um, this is what Babbitt identifies as the 
most pernicious force in America and in the West. And he believes that the reason um, for US foreign policy, he was looking at Wilson and um, Wilsonianism at the time and the social gospel movement. Um, he sees in, in all of this, the working of, of course, the romantic imagination, but specifically sentimental humanitarianism, which is the ethic that results from romantic, the romantic imagination. So sentimental humanitarianism, Babbitt says, is um, it's this idea that we can reach the brotherhood of man, we can, um, we can dream the beautiful dream, and we, we needn't really worry about how to get there so much as making sure we have this beautiful ideal in our collective imagination, in our collective minds. Um, and so examples of sentimental humanitarianism uh, abound. I mean, where to even begin? There are so many examples of sentimental humanitarianism. Um, I'm interested in what, I don't know if he uses this term, if, if Klaus Rinn brings this up in the introduction. Is, does sentimental humanitarianism ring a bell? I think he touches on it. Um, so I'm curious. Use that term, but he he did talk about it in in the, in the reading. Okay, um, and one of the uh, hallmarks of of sentimental humanitarianism is this idea that that um, I must have the power. So as the dreamer of the beautiful dream, um, it's it's understood that because I have the dream, I, I understand the ideal so well that um, the masses should take a backseat and I should be given the power. Um, and so uh, Babbitt was very critical of Wilson for this very type of mentality. Um, Woodrow Wilson believed that he was making the world safe for democracy. What could be more uh, visionary and idealistic than thinking you're making the entire world safe for democracy um, through war. And so Babbitt would say, yes, of course, because the, the, the idealistic dream of the sentimental humanitarian who, who is claiming to be doing good for all of humanity, this always, Babbitt says, requires um, a great deal of bloodshed to get to that, um, that new and glorious future. And so the sentimental humanitarianism, humanitarian, um, the visionary always wants the power. So bound up in the ideal and in idealism is, is that um, either philosopher or politician or whoever it is um, demanding or assuming that he or she would need the power to bring about that dream to make it a reality. And so Babbitt points out that this, that there's something very arrogant about this. Um, and you can see it in smaller ways. You can see this idea of sentimental humanitarianism in um, Rousseau in, in the reveries. We'll get to that where he thinks that he is um, persecuted that, but he at the same time argues that 
humanity in general is very good, but human beings in particular are very annoying. He doesn't want to have to deal with them. He wishes they could just get out of the way. And so you kind of see a, a microcosm of this idea in, in Rousseau's writings. Any questions about that? Or any, um, would anyone like to give us an example, a modern example of sentimental humanitarianism? Where do you see it? Well, I, th I think a lot of people talk about stamping, you know, racism out of the hearts of all our countrymen, right? I don't know how anybody could possibly do that as noble goal as that might be. Um, so that's right here. Anyone else? I really liked uh, <clears throat> this portion of the reading. I found it very, um, I saw him like predicting a lot of stuff in our time. Um, I have. Uh, I, like I highlighted the moralistic crusading portion because um, like the, the narrative between um, like uh, the propaganda of we have to go invade this country X because human rights, right? We have to, uh, you know, do it for ethical reasons. And, um, and then I really like the quote where he said, no limits need to be placed on a self that seeks the good of mankind. So there's no limits. Like if you're doing good, the ultimate good, we're, we're helping all of humankind. Don't judge us. We're, we're just helping everybody. I mean, that's the way I read it. But um, yeah, just there's many, many um, examples, but I don't want to get into it. But uh, I think they're obvious. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's for the good of humankind. And so there, there should be no limits. Um, and I think we can see that in uh, U.S. foreign policy, certainly, as Babbitt pointed out in his day. And, um, and yes, we, uh, there, these justifications, the sentimental humanitarian justification abounds for so much. Um, I... I hesitate to bring up examples, <laughs> but if anyone would like to add to that, where you might see it. I mean, you, you see it on like a, a cup of Starbucks coffee, right? This coffee is making the world a better place. We have, we have saved children making this, this cup of coffee. Practically everything you pick up in the grocery store, and I don't mean just Whole Foods. You go into a regular grocery store where the rest of us can shop, and anything you pick up, it's got fair trade, sustainably sourced. Conflict-free, you know, right? What's that? Conflict-free. Yeah, exactly. And the, the buzzwords, they're, they're <laughs> evolving faster than I can even keep up. Um, and that, Babbitt would say, is quintessential sentimental humanitarianism. We have no idea how these coffee beans were sourced and produced <laughs> And, and Babbitt would say that using words like ethically sourced, he would say that this type of um, abstract language is, is very dangerous because the idealist thrives on abstract language. So does the romantic imagination, which is related to this idea of having a vision, but not having a, a practical plan for getting there. The way that the romantic imagination works is through abstract thinking and the use of abstract language. And so when you um, 
are getting your cup of coffee from Starbucks and you're being reassured that it's all ethically sourced and sustainable and it's carbon neutral and whatever else, Babbitt would just laugh or cry. I don't know if he knew about all this and say that that does not mean anything because um, all of that would have to be carefully investigated to see if any of it actually is is true. And second of all, that merely making a consumer choice is not, is not actual moral behavior um, because there's no uh, action involved. You're just making a consumer purchase. Um, but the, the allure of sentimental humanitarianism is it removes the burden of action, Babbitt says. No action is required to feel like you are a moral person. You simply put the sign up in your front yard that says, we believe, da 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 da, da and it lists out everything. And, and that is one of many, I'm sure, shortcuts to morality in our lives that we can take is Babbitt, Babbitt's argument. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.